Here we go, rejecting this screen. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out west. Adam Stanko also out west. The number three overall pick in the 06 draft, the two-time NBA champion. In 06, he led the nation in scoring. He was the WCC Player of the Year at Gonzaga. He's a former Zags ball boy. He's Adam Morrison. Adam, how you feeling? Uh, I'm good, man. Just uh, hanging in there and, uh, you know, doing the quarantine thing. So just like everybody else and just... Hoping, fingers crossed, this gets over with soon. I've got a few friends who are also type 1 diabetics. So how much more heightened are you? Uh, very much so. I, uh, you know, I kind of learned about the seriousness uh, probably about two weeks before. Um, I had a birdie whisper in my ear. Somebody that's uh, well connected to uh, somebody else at the CEO of a major uh health company that told me it was coming so i was very aware when i was in vegas during the wcc and um you know i did all my prep work before then so um i've been the antenna's been up and it's definitely scary for everybody but yeah the type 1 diabetes definitely adds fuel to the fire um so i've been in quarantine for i think 17 days now i've only gone to my sister's house who's working from home um so i haven't been on the general public at all so trying to take extra precaution. Given type 1 diabetes, and I understand that Gonzaga was your only Division One offer, and I've heard you yeah. say that being a type 1 diabetic scared a lot of teams away, a lot of other schools away. Did you ever hear it firsthand or secondhand about a specific coach, specific school that said, we're not going to offer Adam Morrison because of his diabetes? Um. I always got the impression um, that people, I never heard it, you know, first off or secondhand, but I could tell when you would talk to the coaches that they didn't do the research and were kind of afraid of the unknown, which is understandable if you're uneducated about something, you know, you obviously don't have the right frame of mind. Um, So, you know, and to be fair, Gonzaga wanted to gray shirt me, whatever that means, um, because they were afraid um, at the start of of how I could react to the college game and the rigors of being a student athlete or what have you. So I understand kind of where people were coming from, but also, um, you know, I always told the teams that were talking to me, the universities that were, that they could call my endocrinologist and, you know, they can look at my high school tapes and see how well balanced I am. And they can look at my, all my medical records, but uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of overlooked in that regards. And I think some of that has to do with it. And then not uh, to be fair, I was six, four white kid from Spokane. I didn't play in a big team. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I had, you know, that, that, that had, had something to do with it as well. But uh, yeah, I think just the unknown and in un- education of some um, of the universities kind of hampered my recruiting process. Adam, who were the other schools that were that were talking to you? At the time, it was Washington State, and it was um, Coach Graham that used to coach at was assistant at um, Oklahoma State with Eddie Sutton, mm-hmm. and we went. My dad and I, because Pullman's about two and a half hours away from Spokane, so we went. They invited me to an unofficial, and it was the year that Arizona had, I think it was Jason Gardner still, Luke Walton, I think Iguodala was on the team, or it might have been the year after, but then Bynum was on the team, Channing Fry was on the team, 
and it was two for one ticket night and there must have been like 400 people there um so <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when we showed up my dad was like uh, you're probably not going to go here right you know and uh you know and then i had just a few other feelers from you know your big skies and stuff like that uh teams, which is not a bad thing, but it was mostly mid-major um, and teams of that nature. I, like I said, I didn't play in a big AU team, so I was kind of under the radar. Um, and to be frank, uh, Gonzaga was fine. Um, you know, obviously it worked out too. So when Gonzaga came knocking, I was plenty happy with that. You said that they wanted to gray shirt you, but I know that you started scrimmaging with the team a few months before your, your freshman season started. I'm curious as to what those scrimmages looked like. Uh, yeah, see, it was back when you couldn't practice, but you could obviously play pickups. So there was, you know, obviously no coaches. So um, Gonzaga has always had a really good culture as, as far as summertime with guys staying around. Um, and I think that's kind of the, one of the reasons they've been successful for so long is it's highly encouraged that you go to summer school and then, you know, you stay around and play. So, being from town, obviously, uh, you know, they invited me just to come play with their guys. And um, I just had a lot of success in the open runs. And that kind of opened the door to the idea of me being able to um, contribute my freshman year because we had, I think, six seniors. We ended up being a two seed that year. Um, so we were really, you know, experienced and had a lot of depth. And so going into that season, even if I thought I was good enough, it could have been proved into, you know, redshirt anyway, um, just on minutes. Um, you know, sometimes you're, you deserve to play, but other guys are ahead of you. You know how it works in sports. So, um, I think just playing in the, in the summertime and really having a lot of success kind of spearheaded that idea for me to come off the bench. And it, it gave validity to the older guys that, you know, if I'm playing against or playing ahead of some of the, other guys are stealing minutes. It wasn't going to be anything to affect the locker room or anything of that nature. So, you know, I just really had a, a good summer, I guess. And it, it kind of, you know, led to the success I had my freshman year and so on. I remember as a, your freshman season, the, the, the shaved head, you always played with this tremendous confidence. How much trash talking is going on, especially with the guys that were seniors and, and uh, a sense of uh, that cockiness that, that made you so good? Uh, I didn't say much to those guys at that first, um, you know, cause I kind of looked up to them more so. So I was just happy to be on the same court as them. Um, but then once I started having success, uh, especially against some of the guys that I, um, you know, were going to be battling for minutes, you know, my confidence obviously rose and then, you know, the older guys kind of took me under the wing as well. And they kind of put it in coach view and the staff's ear. They're like, Hey, you know, Adam needs to be able to be a part of the rotation and uh, be considered one of the top eight or whatever to, to get significant minutes um, every game. You know, that gave me confidence as well, but I, I, I didn't trash talk much as a freshman. I was too scared. And I just wanted these guys to like invite me to the party afterwards. So I didn't really try to, <laughs> Any feathers. I was just trying to hang out and be part of the part of the group, you know. So I, I left the trash talking for later in life, I guess. We'll get back to the show in a moment, but first, this from my bookie. Since sports have come to a screeching halt with basketball players bench, pitchers off the mound, everybody else on the sidelines, our friends at my bookie not going to let you down. You can stay sane, stay entertained. 
With access to your favorite games like Blackjack, Roulette, Slots, War, and more. The card game, War. It doesn't matter whether you're out in the front lines, quarantined at home, fun doesn't have to come to an end with my bookie. Video poker is not your thing, but you still need a fix? They've got you covered. They've got a host of live casino dealers online. Professional dealers at their tables, live on their site, 24-7. You can also bet on esports. My bookie has partnered with some of the leading esports brands to bring you wagers on virtual action straight from the court in NBA 2K20. Plus, you can build up your bankroll by taking advantage of shifting odds on political bets. You can trust the industry leaders in times like these. Reliable, upright, best of all, they pay fast when you win. And better yet, mybookie.ag. Use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. MyBookie.ag, promo code LOCKEDONNBA, a 150% bonus on your first casino deposit. LOCKEDONNBA, 150% cash bonus on your first deposit, and you can claim those extra funds all the way up to $750. So MyBookie.ag, promo code LOCKEDONNBA to activate the offer. You spin, you win, get paid. All right, so I want to I go back a moment to AAU, but I'm going to stay on that then. So when did the trash talking start? Uh, I think I used to do it a lot in high school, to be honest. Um, yeah, just, yeah, I, I did it a lot in high school. I, I idolized Larry Bird growing up and Jordan. So that'll give you the preface and the, the foundation right there. <laughs> of um, course. I liked Reggie Miller too, as well. So I, I think just, you know, uh, being really successful in high school, obviously being uh, recruited the way I, or at Gonzaga as a Division One athlete, you're going to be, uh, you know, pretty much dominating your your league. So I started it all then, probably my junior year of high school, and it just kind of grew within itself. Um, my dad was a college basketball coach, and he coached me all the way um, through AU, um, you know, all the way to eighth grade. So I, I didn't really do it then. Cause he was kind of like a Bobby Knight type of coach. So I, 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 I left the, the bad stuff so he can kick my ass when I got home. Um, you know, so it developed later when I wasn't under his uh, wing and, uh, you know, his discipline, disciplinary as a father action, which, um, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys ever played for your dad or your mom mm-hmm. in any sport. It's it's a different dynamic, but uh, he taught me everything I know. But it, it can be rough when you're you know a kid sometimes. So wait on on the trash talking. Did you have any go to lines? And do you remember any specific instances where you just you you just trash talked a kid to to the point of near tears? I think in college. When we played Oklahoma State my sophomore year is when they had the Graham brothers and, um, you know, Joey and I can't remember the mm-hmm. other one. They both played in the league, very mm-hmm. athletic, good players. So I was going into that game thinking that one of them was going to cover me and I was looking forward to it. Um, and they put a white guy on me. And so, <laughs> you know, when the game started, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, I was saying to the kid, I'm like, why the fuck are you guarding me? You know what I mean? Like, and that's for real. I was like, why did you put this guy on me? Um, so I was kind of, you know, a little bit, you know, uh, offended, to be honest, because I was looking forward to playing against guys who were, I knew they were NBA players. Um, they started the game by putting um, him, um, I can't remember the kid's name who guarded me, but I was just kind of perplexed. 
and I was giving it to him and, and talking trash and telling him he's bum and all that stuff, you know, I'm just like, why are you fucking guarding me? Like, this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. So, um, you know, and that's, I've had other instances that, uh, uh, you know, I got three kids now, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I coach one of them. So I want to make sure that, uh, that gene doesn't get passed down. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you were playing AAU, I said we get back to it. You're playing for Eastern Washington Elite, and you're traveling yep. to major tournaments. So, being as you know, from an Eastern Washington AAU program playing in national tournaments, do you remember the first one or group of big time national players that you went up against that you held your own, or, or even were able to knock those guys off? Yeah, I remember. We played the New York Gauchos, and everybody's familiar with them. Yeah. Um, and then we played, I remember playing Charlie Villanueva. Um, mm. He was a class ahead of me. And uh, also Brandon Roy, we played him because he was from Seattle. And I just remember going home. It was going into my junior year that year. I was like, fuck, man, I got to get a lot better. Um, these guys are, you know, talked about as being high-level recruits and probably NBA players down the line. And so it was really good for me as a player to, um, you know, see that and see where that level is at because I dominated the area at the time. Um, but once you get out of the area and kind of see how athletic guys are, how skilled they are, how much taller they are, and obviously some of that stuff you can't control. But, um, you know, as a slow white kid, I was like, I got to make up some gaps here skill-wise because I'm going to get my ass kicked if I don't. Um, and so playing against those guys going in that summer really opened my eyes um, to be able to try to get to the next level for sure. How much did you get a chance to play against or see the the Rainier Beach kids at that time? Because I know they were incredibly explosive. Every kid was like a dunk contest phenomenon. Yeah, they had – it was Roderick and Roderick Stewart. Was their Brothers, name. yep. Yep, and right-handed, left-handed twins. Roderick was right-handed, left-handed Roderick. Insane um, dunkers. Insane. insane. Yeah, it literally insane dunkers. They had Nate Robinson on that team as well the mm-hmm. year before. Um, we never played them in high school. They were a class below, but I played in their um, all-star game that they had, you know, the, the high school all-star games, and I won the MVP. And uh, it was at Rainier Beach. And it was kind of, it was an awesome experience. Jamal Crawford was there. Um, they had a DJ and stuff. And I was the only kid from the East side invited um, and won the all-star game. And it was, it was actually a really fun experience and they were all cool and stuff, but they were like, that was, if can you imagine the, like if, if the internet was more prevalent then, um, because their high school mixtape is fucking insane like you've seen it and if people can find it somehow on youtube or something like that look it up like that rainier beach team was disgusting like obviously oh. nate robinson was a dunk contest and then those two kids playing in high school it was fucking gross man they were I, yeah i think they were i think they were in the same class as lebron um mm-hmm. and and I, I think they were at the time like two and three ranked nationally yep. like their junior year or something like nationally in the country they were I just remember watching them at warm-ups i saw them play slam dunk to the beach tournament in delaware and i saw them play at um at abcd camp and both times those kids like it was people crowded around to watch them have dunk contests and meanwhile nate robinson's on the team becomes 
an all-time NBA right. dunk fan. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's just it's it's crazy here. People's memories that I know uh, in reference to when you've you've talked about Larry Brown, and we'll we'll get to the NBA stuff later. But but um, you've said that your dad was a hard ass, but he kind of taught you how to deal with it. I'm just curious, like. You, and you referenced it just now talking about him being like Bobby Knight. How, how do you learn to deal with it when, when your dad or just any coach is, is just rough like that? I think you have to, you know, everybody's heard this once in their life and at least I hope so, but you have to hear the message and not how it's delivered, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and so he wasn't, you know, he always instilled confidence in me, but he always held me to a higher level. Um, and so, you know, at the time, it's hard to see coach, you know, different from dad. And um, you have to be able to try to separate that. And it's, you know, when you're emotional and you're, you know, and you're 8, 10, 12 years old, it, that gets difficult. Um, but looking back on it now, I mean, it, he prepared me for what I needed to be a Division One athlete and obviously the pros um, because he coached JUCO for 20 years and his you know, if anybody's ever seen Last Chance U, I know it's football. It's the same shit he was dealing with, just a bunch of knuckleheads that you have to kind of grind grind them down to bring them back up. And so he didn't really know uh, any other style, um, but it also prepared me to um, different types of coaching, um, you know, and it provided me like, uh, you know, to have uh, accountability as a player and, you know, because I knew, and this may sound bad, I'm not trying to give him a bad light, but if I didn't play hard, it was going to be a long ass card ride, a car ride going home. Right. So then hmm. that just instilled me to always, you know, go out and give your best effort every single time. And that carries over to anything you want to do in life. Um, so I think sometimes, you know, you don't want to be a helicopter parent, which you definitely was not. But also, if you can demand more of your kids that you would um, yourself, it, it just provides so many life lessons that can be applied to anything uh, later. So, um, yeah, it was it was difficult. There's a lot of tears, a lot of emotion. Um, I was definitely an emotional kid, uh, emotional player, obviously. And so there was a lot of long ass car rides where um, it's not like if I miss shots, you piss, but if I didn't just play hard, he would be just furious. And so it just taught me how to just go out and, you know, you get in between the lines and give it everything you got. How do you now, and I, I want to get to Gonzaga in a moment, but how do you now balance what he taught you and how you want to be as a dad, as a coach, coaching your daughter? Um, I, I pull the reins back uh, significantly more with my daughter um she's a sixth grader we have a pretty good AU team we've won city two two years in a row here in, in Spokane um you know girls to me they listen better as far as my my experience coaching I've coached high school and I've been around I coached two years at Gonzaga as a grad assistant so I have some experience I think they listen more um, as a team and as an individuals, but sometimes they do it to a fault. They're rule followers to a fault. And I mean, sometimes you have to kind of tell them like, Hey, it's okay. Like if I drop a play and I, you know, the play is designed to go in the post, but the girl's covered, you can fucking swing it. It's okay. Or you can go by her and lay it up. Like, um, I think they, they rule follow a little bit more. So for me coaching, I try to push more of the individual, 
um, you know, their individual confidence out more than the, the, the team comp, uh, confidence. I think with boys, and maybe I'm generalizing, I think boys watch more basketball um, and they look at like Steph Curry or whomever and they take fadeaway threes and think it's fine. Girls, you tell them to swing it six times, they're going to swing it six times, period. Mm, right. You know right. what I'm saying? So it's definitely more enjoyable for me coaching because you can you can kind of guide them to what exactly you want to do. But sometimes it can be to a fault because you're like, hey, like you guys are good players. You can you can listen to me. But if you read something different on the floor, I have no problem with you making a read. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. Um, so. For me, coaching my daughter, I definitely pull the reins back a lot on the demanding part of it um, because, you know, I think uh, she's just wired a little bit different than I was too. So I want to be cognizant of that fact as well. So I don't want to, you know, make it to where basketball is not fun as well. So you guys are parents. You understand. You've got to make it fun for Gonzaga, your opening game at Madison Square Garden against St. Joe's, Delante West, Jameer Nelson, your first touch is a rebound coast-to-coast, 18-foot fall away. What do you remember going into the into the game itself? Had you ever been to Madison Square Garden before? And then what do you remember about that first touch, if anything? Well, I so when the season started, I was out of this, you know, I was coming off the bench and then, the night before at shoot around some somebody was either ill or had a tweak something and so coach few told me i was starting the night before and i i seriously remember like turning beet red and like started sweating right there because i didn't know all the fucking plays like i had no clue um what the <laughs> hell i didn't know flex i used to throw it into the corner all the time like i didn't understand um you know because in high school you just get the ball and you go score it you know basically at that level um, so I was nervous as hell. Like, I mean, honestly, I was fucking terrified because I didn't know, I didn't know what, I didn't know half the plays. I just, you know, faked it till I made it. I mean, honestly, at that time. And so he tells me, I call my dad and he's just trying to like call me. I wasn't freaking out, but he's just like, you're fine. Just go out and play your game. You're going to do fine. Um, but he knew I didn't know all the shit either. And so he was like, well, just, throw it to Blake or Corey if you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you'll be fine. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember uh, coming out and they had, that was that team that I think went, went they lose in the final Eight. four, something like that. And um, they had so many fans there and I've never been around, you know, in a big stadium like that and just hearing the booze when we came out. I mean, it was so exciting um, to be a part of that atmosphere. And I mean, I was just as hyped as I could ever be. Um, and, you know, I just, that play, everybody laughs around it here at Gonzaga and Spokane. I didn't even, like, really realize that it was a bad shot because that was what I was used to doing in high school, just grab it and fucking, I'm not passing anybody else in high school, you know, at the time. <laughs> um, so I just pulled up, and, and luckily I made it. Few, he would have been, he had a short, way shorter lease than he, he does now for younger players. Um, but, <laughs> you know, kind of. Kind of surprised him, and uh, I'm glad it went in. And everybody's points to that play as one of the beginnings of my career at Gonzaga. The the whole career at Gonzaga, uh, you in big games, big moments, electric crowds. What was happening with you mentally? What did you do 
in those crazy chaotic moments in order to calm yourself down. This may sound funny, but being a, a type one diabetic, I always had a, a strict routine ever since I was 14 and playing. So I looked at every single game. Um, I guess it sounds cliche, but my routine was exactly the same. I didn't allow myself to hype, get hyped up or get too down because my blood sugars would fluctuate. Um, so I think it really helped me um, keep a level head and uh, a calmness anxiety-wise going into these games. And, and yes, I was mentally, you know, more uh, ready for big games. Um, but I made sure that I stayed on the same physical routine, you know, as far as nap, what I was eating, the time I was eating, insulin intake, all that stuff. Um, so I think it really just helped me, um, you know, be ready for any type of game uh, that came across. And, you know, to be frank, I was always, you know, a pretty good basketball player, obviously, growing up. So I was used to not carrying teams, that would be unfair to my teammates, but to having to perform, you know, I'm talking all the way from AU to high school to college, having to perform to be successful as a team. So I, I, I never got nervous about, you know, a big game where I knew if I didn't have a good game, we weren't, we weren't going to win or we didn't have a chance to win. Um, so I think just uh, combine that with the, 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 rigors of being a diabetic and, and keeping a similar routine every single time to almost to exact, you know, moments, it, it really helped me on the floor, um, you know, have a level head and a level physical reaction, a level mental reaction to the moment. Um, and so, yeah, just to uh, go out there and let it rip. And uh, a lot of times it was successful. All right. So, so speaking about trying to keep a level head, there was so much trash talk in that first round game against Xavier in 06. What, what do you, yep. what do you remember about what was being said on the floor? One of the guys called me a bitch like numerous times. Um, you know, I, I banged a big three late in that game. Uh, I got into it with Sean Miller on the sideline. Um, I punched a kid like not, full on uppercut it, but I did like a cheap shot jab when he cut to the middle. Like I, if you watch the game, there's, we were playing a two, three zone, a guy cuts middle and I just like punched him in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, <laughs> obviously if they had the replay stuff, I would have been, I would have had a lot of, you know, flagrant ones. I mm-hmm. guarantee that. <laughs> but yeah, it was, is crazy. But going through the line, the, the handshake line, one of their assistants called me a bitch as well. I mean, it was wild, but, uh, they were they were a crazy 14 seed i can tell you that much like we were scared of that game i mean we were more comfortable in that indiana game in that second round for sure but it, that xavier team really had us frightened i mean we we obviously felt good as far as where we were as a team but we knew that was going to be a, a battle um because that's when uh, you know Sean Miller's a good coach and he's hung- he was hungry at the time and obviously still is. You get what I'm saying? Like he was trying to uh, you know mm-hmm. level up. So that team played with a lot of toughness and grind to him. And uh, yeah, we were glad to get out of that one for sure. That that entire season, Adam, what, what was the what was the craziest it got? Um, well, I had to do alias at at hotels. Um, that, that became apparent. We what had, a group of, 
uh, I had numerous ones. Um, I used Dirk Diggler a lot. Um, um, and the NBA, uh, what was Othella Harrington? Uh, he told me to use David Koresh, which is fucked up, but he said I look like him. Um, but <laughs> I used that one in, in the NBA a couple times, and I probably shouldn't have, but that's, he's like, man, you look uh, like that fucking David Koresh. <laughs> it was funny, but it was like, hysterical. Yeah, in yeah, San Diego, we had, um, kids students storm our bus like three or four of them dudes trying to fight me after a game we had the san francisco game where the fire marshal got on the pa and told everybody that they were going to close the game down because there was too many people and everybody just said didn't even like fucking move they said fuck it and just stormed like the i mean there was literally people sitting on the they used to have you know an overhang where it was a walkway there was people sitting on the overhang um, it was it was bananas. Like it was probably a thousand to two thousand people over capacity, and the, the guy literally gets on there. The fire marshal's like, "We might cancel the game," and nobody fucking moved. And we're like, "Yeah, fuck you," um, <laughs> you know. And then just just all the media coverage. I mean, it was there was interviews almost every other day, and and at the time, it was great. But at the time, it got pretty redundant because everybody wanted to hear the diabetic story and all that stuff which i understood was helped to raise awareness but also it was like man you could just literally copy and paste from the article that you just read from somebody else i'm not going to yeah, give right. you a different answer really you know what i'm saying yeah so it got it got a little bit uh mundane um which if i could go back in time i wish i would have had somebody pull me aside to to I was okay with the media, but it should have been, I should have been coached better. And that's not blaming anybody, but I should have had somebody in my circle kind of coach me how to get through those things, kind of Russell Wilson through some of these interviews. And um, because after a while, it, it it's hard to hide your frustration with getting asked the same question over and over and over again. And then that gives, you know, it gives somebody ammo to give you a bad portrayal, but it's like, Hey man, you've, you literally just read an article in USA Today and you're asking me the same exact questions. Like, right, what am I right, right. To, yeah, what am I supposed to say? So it just got, it got crazy. And, and you guys know college basketball was covered way different back then. I mean, it was, it was way bigger. There was no one and dones. You knew, like, could you tell me the starting five on this year's team, top five teams this year? No. Probably not, right? No. You could no. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, right? I mean, you could at least have an idea of who the best players were. And I'm talking just the casual fan. Now it's right. like you barely even you barely even know who's in the top 10. And I, shit, I do college basketball for a living, right? So I, I'm even like, I, nobody even talks about it anymore. It's crazy. So it turned into a yeah. two-week sport. When you, when you said that you had you had to go to an alias – what was the what was the moment that led you to all right? I got to go to an alias. Well, I think there used to be. You guys have probably seen it being around sports. Is you get these guys that are at every hotel and they're the same dudes, and they have a duffel bag of yeah. your memorabilia, and they fucking. You know, they ask you to sign stuff, which is fine, signing a few things. But when they ask you to sign ten, you know it's going on eBay, so they're just mm -hmm. basically ripping you off. Um, and then what happens is they start calling, they just ask the front desk and they start calling your room. They're like, Hey, can I come to your room and you sign some stuff? So that's when I was like, Hey man, like you can't. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The way you get them is you go, 
who do I make this out to? And then they turn yep. red and they're like, yep. uh, Bill, or, you know, or I used to put two <laughs> eBay on there and they would really get pissed. But <laughs> two eBay. <laughs> two eBay. Oh, yep. That's yep. amazing. And like I said, I don't mind signing for people or didn't, but you know, when you're trying to make 30 bucks off a college kid, you know, it's like, come on, man, you know, give him a yeah, break. For sure. We've heard how chaotic it's gotten. I've heard some of that stuff, but what was the funnest part of that season? Wait, hold on, hold on a second. Before you answer that, it's a good thing Adam wasn't helping you with media stuff because he just said funnest. Go ahead, Adam. Don't ignore it, though. I'm, I'm, you know, this was a little bit of a question. The I'm most sorry. fun part of that season. How about the most fun part? Does that work, Noah? Much better. Much better. I don't know. Like the locker room, I guess. We had a really good uh, group of guys. Um, you know, and they got a lot of attention as well um, because of how well, how successful we were and then my individual stuff. Um, you know, so I think that whole part of it, um, you know, but I, I kind of look back on that year with mixed emotions, to be to be frank. Like, it's not it's not a bad memory, but it's also not something that was fantastic at all all the times you know describing what i said earlier about some of the media and the drains and the fandom stuff got to be a little bit odd um especially locally i mean the people mean well but i couldn't even go i literally couldn't go anywhere um and you know just be a normal college kid um and that gets that gets rough and when you're not used to it nobody's ever prepared for fame i guess is, is the best way to describe it so i'm always been a kind of introverted type of guy so you know, that was that was a struggle at times to kind of just want to kind of hide out and not be um, recognized. And then people take that as you being um, kind of a jerk or whatever. But it's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to sign autographs at dinner with my family. Right. And you put your hands over my food to sign a napkin. Am I supposed to like smile? You know what I'm saying? And so it gets to be kind of draining. Um, so that year was great. It, it it helped me propel myself to the next level, but it was also difficult at times. Um, you know, I, I had uh, my jersey retired at Gonzaga this last season, and I spoke that publicly at the at the, the ceremony. I said I thank all the fans for always sticking by me, but uh, you know that that last season was was kind of difficult at times, even though it didn't seem like it from the out the outside perspective it was it was tough to uh be put on a post be a poster child for health and then um just the mania behind it it got uh it got really draining changes you as a person for sure well someone puts their hand over your food now and asks you for an autograph they're losing a hand (laughs) these days yeah no it's funny like i i'm more uh open to people taking pictures and stuff and you know that's just part of the culture and, and i appreciate people still being fans i really do mm-hmm. um but I, seriously at the time and i'm not trying to be narcissistic but it was like every fucking where i went oh, right? yeah. and i was so recognizable at the time like it was every fucking place i went it was it was no hiding from it um and it just became uh you know really mentally draining after a while but uh you know, time heals all wounds, and uh, I look back at it, like I said, with mostly positivity. But it's not—it's not—you uh, know—unicorns and rainbows, if that makes any sense. Yeah, certainly. I, w- I want to get to the pros in a moment. Um, 
but as we record this, I think it was it was last week. CBS was there and all a bunch of old games, and they had the the UCLA game in '06. Mm-hmm. You watch it? Did you watch it at all? I didn't. Somebody texted me, said it was on. I was like, well, I've already seen it. Um, and, did you ever? Uh, did you ever rewatch it? I did. I did. I watched it once, probably a couple of years after I was when I was in the league. I watched it once. Um, yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, one of those games where 10 things had to go right for UCLA late and 10 things had to go wrong for us. And they all kind of happened. Boom, boom, boom. Um, they made huge plays. I mean, Farmar hit like a 16 foot running fate, you know, run, runner off the glass with two people in his face. He misses that. We get the rebound. We probably win. If Batista, I thought he got fouled on that play, but that's irrelevant. If he gets fouled there, he's an 85% free throw shooter. He probably makes us free throws to win. The play that really bothers me is I had a a one-on-one on on the baseline side instead of driving it and trying to get to the line or putting pressure on the defense. I took like a 12-footer, like 14-footer on the baseline late in the game. That's the play that really haunts me, I guess you could say, as far as um, what could he have done differently. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you ask me this question about – you know, that UCLA game 10 years ago, I probably would have hung up the phone. But now it's part of college basketball lore. It's it's part of what people remember me by, I guess. But I just, you know, for me, it's funny how culture changes. You know, you watch the NCAA tournament now, um, people cry at the end of every single game. Uh, if, they, if they don't do it on the floor, they're oh, doing yeah. it in the locker room. They're doing it on the bench. Um, I got hammered for it for whatever reason, but you see it now. Nobody ever bats an eye. So I, I just I find that a little bit um, different as far as how culture has changed. But as far as um, you know, like being embarrassed by it or being ashamed of it, I'm not at all. I, I, nah, I've gotten screw over that. that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Screw that. That narrative was always ridiculous. Was always let's um, let's let's get to the league. What was that Bobcats workout like? What were the details? Um, so we had, I think it was, I can't remember who was in that work. I think it was Rodney Carney was in that workout. And then uh, I think a throw in, I guess. Uh, and I hate to use that because they're all good players, you know, just to get a second round pick. But that's legit. Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, um, yeah, I, I just remember being in really good shape. I had Don McLean. Um, worked me out before for a couple months and he really got me in really good conditioning shape um, and so I just came into it and, and really shot the ball well I was like I said I was in the best shape of my life at the time so I was jumping higher and I was they, they commented on how more athletic I was than I looked I guess and that was always I always got that as a player too which was fine and then I really had a good interview afterwards. So um, it was just, uh, I think, a perfect storm. Uh, Bernie Bickerstaff was the GM and the coach at the time. And so he came to my the game against UW where we lost at their place and I had 43. So I think that really solidified my position with him um, as far as being a you know, top five pick. Um, you know, because Brandon Roy was in that game. Uh, Trey Simmons played for that team, Bobby Jones. I mean, it was a really good Washington team, and um, we should have yep. won, but I had 43 at their place and, uh, you know, really played good. So I think that kind of put the plan of the seed in their, their minds um, to get drafted. 
I'm at that position. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a really good workout. And, um, you know, obviously I got drafted there. I know, I know Don must have kicked your ass because he, he uh, is a close friend of mine. I go down to see his workouts every mm-hmm. summer. And yep. Don has even said that he said that of all the guys he's had, he had Devin Booker, D'Angelo Russell, um, Donovan Mitchell. He said that you're the best shooter he's ever had down there. That like by far you're the best shooter. It was unbelievable some of the shooting displays he said that that you put on. Um, I'm curious though, like with the workouts with Don, with the Bobcat stuff, like what at the time were NBA teams telling you that they wanted to see from you that they didn't see from from your college tape? Well, I think, um, and that's a great compliment from Don. And Don's actually really good um, pre-workout. And obviously, you just mentioned the names. Um, He's still, if I see him every once in a while, you know, doing games and stuff. So I appreciate you telling me that. But uh, at the time, I think teams wanted to see how I could defend. I mean, that was always a question. Um, They were concerned with the diabetes in which every right to be. I mean, it was 82 games, obviously, and the rigors of this travel and the schedule, you know. And, you know, I think my weight as well, because I was – I, my playing weight was 200 to 205 and I'm six, 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 seven. Um, and so I was slotted. I was kind of, I'm a tweener, I guess I was not fast enough to be a two, but I think I was too thin bodied to be a three at that time. Cause a lot of threes back then used to, you know, play back to the basket or, you know, uh, catch and face up like Sigma style and play on that mid block. Um, and so I think teams really wanted to see athletically how I was and defensively how I was. Um, you know, I did, I think I did three workouts. I did Toronto who had number one, who mm-hmm. I think they drafted Bar- Bargnani that year. Um, I did Portland, which I had a good workout, but, uh, it was Brandon Roy, Rudy Gay, myself, and one other person, and that was a really good workout. I mean, there's, there's a, Brandon Roy would have been a Hall of Famer, in my opinion, if he didn't get hurt. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was basically, can you handle the NBA rigors? How athletic are you, and can you defend is really what teams were looking at. They knew I could score and, and things of that nature, but they wanted to see my more physical attributes, um, stuff that you really can't control you know, for the most part. When you, when you do finally get to the league and, and it's weird because of how people have, have talked about your career and all that, but I think what people forget, you you're averaging 16 points a game, your first 14 games. I know you've described hitting the wall when you hit mm-hmm. like game 50, which so many mm-hmm. rookies do. What does that actually feel like? Um, for me, it was, it was physical and, and mental exhaustion. Um, I was in shape. I lifted all that summer, but I was not used to the travel. Obviously, um, it was hard to maintain um, the diabetes. To be frank, um, I wasn't sleeping well, um, and then mentally, you have to be able to throw games to the side in the league. You know, you have to be able to wash out the bad ones um, because there's so many of them and, you know, it's the NBA. There's going to be nights where you don't play well. And there's going to be nights when guys just bust your ass. It's the NBA. There's everybody's good. Um, and so I struggled with that. And then also, you know, to be frank, I struggled with, I didn't have any veteran leadership on that team. I had nobody to take me under the wing. I had nobody that, you know, tried to pick me up. I had, 
you know, there was not really a coach that took me under his wing. Uh, JB Bickerstaff was the only guy that was really cool with me. Um, as far as coaches wise, that team was basically all draft picks and then expansion draft pick players. So everybody was trying to get their own, which that happens on a lot of teams, but these were guys that were like literally at their last stop. Right. So everybody was playing for themselves and I just was not used to that type of culture. Um, so it was, it was a difficult, very uh, difficult, dark time in my life, to be frank. Uh, it was tough. It was, I was not used to not being successful all the time. And I was not used to having a locker room and, a, you know, friends, I guess you could say on the team. Um, so I was kind of just out on my own in, in Charlotte and just trying to get through it. And I was more relieved when the season was over because I could just take a break mentally from it. Um, you know, so it, it was a tough year to be to be completely honest. I I was glad it was over with when it was. Yeah, I would imagine. And you know, of course, there's the injury and but Larry Brown. So we had this conversation with with Ryan Hollins, which <laughs> goes back unfortunately to the to the UCLA game. But we had mm-hmm. this conversation with Ryan Hollins because I'd heard you talk about it with Doug Gottlieb about the Larry Brown practices. And Jason mm-hmm. Richardson going to the league and saying, and Jason Richardson going to the league and saying that what he's doing is against the rules. Ryan then told yeah. us that Larry Brown spoke to you guys and said, because I'd like to hear what how, how you remember it. And he said, oh, you guys want to go tell on me or go to the league? Well, fuck it. I'm not changing yeah. anything. Yep. <laughs> Precisely. He uh, He was a big believer in... He said it to us when training camp started. He said training camp is a month. It's not just a week. It's the whole preseason. So we would have taped practices, not just walkers, practices before um, preseason games. And, you know, I I get that you have to grind, and we're a young team. I understand that. Like I said, I grew up around coaching. I grew up around basketball my whole life. But for me, I was like, hey, I have, like, a game routine. (laughs) Like, I, I can't, like, expend energy and get my blood sugars all out of whack and he didn't give a fuck and and then we'd have i'm shit you not we'd have two and a half three hour practices all the time every almost every fucking day and he was the type of coach that would stop every play and talk so you couldn't get you could really couldn't get a lather going and you know it's constantly hard to play when you know if you try to make a play and it it doesn't work out that you're going to get chewed out every single time so you kind of turn robotic um you know, so he was he was tough to play for. Let's just put it at that. He wasn't a big fan of the roster that we had. <laughs> Let's just say that. He would uh, openly complain to Rod Higgins at practices, like loud enough that everybody can hear him on purpose. You know, like, we need to trade this guy, and we need to get a new center and a new point guard. And the guys are standing, like, 10 feet away, and it's just, like, just wasn't used to that. So he was uh, he was different, and it, that whole year was, was – odd for me um because i go from him and then i go to the polar opposite i get traded that year and i go to phil jackson who's the complete opposite um of you know trying to like grind guys down he was the complete opposite he's trying to bring guys up and trying to relieve the pressure off of them as a professional athlete so it was kind of cool to see both sides of the fence i guess on coaching styles um you know and i understand somebody listening to this would be like well larry brown's a hall of fame i get it i'm not saying he's a bad coach but he was just very 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 hard to play for physically for sure 
no question. And especially, yeah, I mean, what you were dealing with at the time, who you were, um, it, it all makes off, sense. I came off an ACL surgery that year, and mm-hmm. that was my first year back. He got hired. And I remember my agent calling me. He was like, uh, this is not good. And I'm all excited. I'm like, ah, new coach, yeah, that's new, new beginnings. And he's like, uh, this is not going to be very good for you, Adam. I, I didn't understand why, but uh, I, I got it about – two days into in the training camp, I understood what he was talking about. He's like, yeah, you're going to, you're, you're in for it, buddy. Um, and, uh, he was just an ultimate grinder, like grind, grind, grind. Like I said, practice, stop, talk, one play, stop, talk. I mean, for two and a half, three hours, every fucking day. And it's just, it just wears on you. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, 2004, he's got LeBron James and, and Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony. He doesn't play them in the Olympics. As because they were young guys, so a whole team of young guys in the NBA. Uh, yeah. I can only imagine how how ugly some of that got. I'm curious. You you just mentioned um, you just mentioned Phil Jackson. So we've heard from the outside like Phil gives books to his players to read, and and he has just a way in understanding players on a different level, and he gets guys yep. to buy into the chemistry and the team atmosphere. From your perspective, like how does how does Phil go about doing that from someone who has played for him? He, uh, well, one, he obviously played in the league. So that, that, that's step one, in my opinion, on kind of understanding, you know, professional athletes. Doesn't mean you always have to, but I think you have to, it, it gives you a leg up. It gives you a starting reference point, in my opinion. Um, he was cognizant of the fact that there was already pressure on the guys just being a Laker. So he understood that. Um, he was really into, you know, Native American culture and, um, you know, the spirit and the soul. And so he always tried to include those rituals or those understandings into the team philosophy. Um, like what? You know, like what? Well, he would bang if it was so you had to be like, let's say practice started at 1130. You had to be in the building at 1030, right? Or 1045. And I always liked that because it created an atmosphere where guys would come in and eat together or they would watch TV together or they'd go shoot together or they'd be laying on the training table together, Um, not just coming in 10 minutes before practice starts. You know, and it doesn't mean guys who do that are lazy. They still get their work in, but they you come in before and it establishes a time to kind of be around each other without it uh, seeming forced, right? Like, hey, we're going to team dinner. No, it's like, hey, every day you come in, you sit with your brothers. Um, and then he would do, you know, like when we're doing our activities, lifting or whatever, he would, when film would start, he would bang a Native American drum to a certain beat. He'd just walk around like, doom, 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 and then everybody just stopped what they're doing and would go into the film room. And then if we had bad games, he would do the sage, right? Um, he'd come into the locker room and do the sage stuff <laughs> to get to clear the energy out. Um, and actually a funny story, we, were, we did the sage one time, and everybody knows it smells a little bit like weed. It has a little bit of that uh, aroma to it and Kareem was a uh, was a coach you know when Bynum was there so he was kind of his mentor but so Kareem would come in wouldn't say much but would, if, if Andrew needed work he would work him out and so Kareem came into the, the film room and he stops at the door and he takes a big one of those and he goes 
He goes, holy shit, man. If I knew you guys were smoking weed in here, I'd be in this motherfucker all the time. Whole place <laughs> fucking fell on the ground, like screaming, crying, laughing. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was so, it was so good. Um, but yeah, Phil just would, uh, he just understood the pressures of being an athlete and he, you know, we did the, the team meditation, that stuff, that stuff was real. You know, you turn the lights off, you'd leave the, the breathing. Um, we'd sit there in 10 minutes of silence and I actually really started to like it. I think meditation is good. You kind of reflect and clear your mind. Um, you know, then he would, what I liked about him as a coach, if, if you weren't playing a lot, he always had those guys play during practice. So you always at least felt good about your game and you felt like you were at least getting a sweat and you were competing. Um, you weren't just, you know, a fill in and practice. You would, have you play three on three or four and four competitive or two on two but like you always played every single day and it wasn't like he, they were just micromanaging you coaching they just let you guys just go you guys need to play against each other and so if the time came you wouldn't shit your pants on the floor you had your wind um and then you felt like you were you were still getting competitive juice of some sort out of you as a player um and then he would talk to you every once in a while if you weren't getting a lot of minutes on why and or he'd apologize you know it sounds funny but he would at least say as a man he'd come up to you and be like hey i'm sorry i couldn't get you in that game this is the situation that i thought i could get you in the game but the game turned this way this is why i didn't get you in and as a player you can respect that because he actually came to you as a man and didn't play any mind games with you he just said i couldn't get you in i apologize i, I get it you're frustrated he did that on his own accord um and so I always had a lot of respect for him, not just because of what he's done as a coach, but as a man, as a manager, he's obviously the best of all time, in my opinion, because he knew how to navigate different personalities, get them to work cohesively. I mean, he hired, a, we had a team psychiatrist that would come in at the start of the playoffs and we'd go through what any issues that we had, you could air them out in the room and then we go over our team goals individual goals and stuff like that and it just really lowered the level of intent you know of tension that would be there being a los angeles laker and it it made it more hey we're just a group of guys that are trying to win a championship and we know everything on the outside but let's let's really hunker down and understand each other and work as a unit and he really facilitated that brilliantly um so I've always had a lot of respect for Phil, even though I didn't play much. He was always fair with me. He was cool. He was open. Um, he never made me feel like I wasn't part of the group. You know, I've played for coaches that um, made other players feel like that, and I, it always bothered me. Um, but he never – it was 1 through 13. You know, you felt like you were part of the group, and he made you um, compete every single day, and he was fair with you, and he was open, and – you know, I had a lot of respect for him for that. It's really behind the curtain stuff with the Lakers. So I got a few follow-ups, Adam, on the, the teams like the psychiatrist side. Was that a full group session or one-on-one yeah. -on -one stuff? Nope, it was full group. Uh, we would do it for about half an hour before, the, um, before practices. And like I said, we'd go over team goals, individual goals, um, any, you know, kind of like okay. airing of grievances, not like Festivus, but like, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. You had a problem with somebody, or if you had an issue, you could bring it up there. But it would be in a calm, fat, you know, it'd be a controlled environment, um, you know, where, you know, if you do that 
outside of with a moderator or, or say, unless you have two personalities that couldn't do that, it could turn into a fight or can turn into something that could snowball. Um, so yeah, we would, uh, we would do things like that. Phil would, would do, um, we'd watch a movie during the playoffs. So like when we were, we were playing the nuggets, that series, we watched the miracle of St. Anna at the same time. So he'd dub it. We'd watch like three plays and then we'd watch five minutes of miracle St. Anna and then three plays. And then you watch the next five minutes, um, <laughs> things like that just changed it up, you know? Uh, um, and then he'd add the guys, you know, if somebody made like a dumbass play, he would have the film guys like find like a clip from SNL and make fun of you that portrayed to that play. Um, like there was a skit on, I think it was Kimmel or one of those shows. And it was, it was making fun of the Kardashian sisters and Lamar fucked up. They played that clip. Right? <laughs> and Lamar's my guy. And I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's great though. Yeah, it was it was it was stuff like that um, that would would keep it light and it would keep it fun. And because, like I said, everybody knows that we're trying to win championships. And if we don't, it's going to be hell to pay because it's L.A., right? I mean, obviously, they love their team, but that's championship or bust there. And so he just was fantastic at managing. I mean, he just really was. He was just a perfect manager and, and knew how to bring the best out of guys and. He knew who has had a screw loose per se in their head and, and would would facilitate that in a positive way and keep them on the same, you know, keep them from going over the edge and keep them on the right track. And um, a lot of coaches can't do that. They do it's my way or the highway. I, I really believe at the professional level, you have to coach guys. You have to have the same demands, but you have to coach them differently. Some guys are different and you have to be able to, facilitate their different personalities to bring out what's best for the team. And he was just, he was the best at it, obviously in my opinion of all time. What were the right buttons that he pushed game seven, 2010 of the finals? Um, I don't, I think, I think it started before that. I think he really calmed everybody down when we lost game five and we're down three, two is when he, you know, that, that calming aspect of, Hey, let's really refocus. And when, you know, we got two games at home, we're not out of this series. I think, so it started there, um, you know, and then I think just game seven, um, you know, I, there wasn't no magical like Hoosier speech or anything like that, but I think um, preparing for a game seven is a year long process. In my opinion, you know, it starts for training camp and I know it sounds cliche, but you have to have those foundations already put in. And the foundation of that, of our team was, you know, we're going to play really good defense. We're going to pound people inside. And obviously we have the best player on the planet um, on our side. And and basically we're going to will our way to this victory. Um, So it was, uh, it was some, something pretty cool to be a part of and, and fun to watch and, yeah, and I was glad to be uh, on the on the right side of that one. Talk about the best player on the planet. How did you earn Kobe's respect? Um, I think, to be honest, uh, just playing hard in practice and not um, kissing his ass, if that's the right way to put it. Um, yeah. You know, I think he was such a smart highly intelligent person 
um, that he could tell if guys were kind of kissing his ass and trying to buddy a buddy up to him. I just treated him like a normal teammate and he treated me the same. And so if you showed up every day and played hard and competed against him and um, put in the work, he loved guys like that. And, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be around him and to be able to see what a true um, it's not just basketball wise, but somebody that like squeezed every ounce of their ability out of themselves every single day. I was, you don't meet people like that a lot in your life. And if you do, you should be thankful. Um, because he was a guy that literally, you know, squeezed the sponge as hard as he can and got every ounce and every percentile percentile out of his abilities out. Um, you know, I've always told young kids when I coached high school here that he was a self-made player. And they kind of look at you funny because they, they assume when you're in the NBA that you're just God put a wand over you and right. said you're going to be good. Kobe wasn't the fastest guy. He didn't have the biggest hands. Yes, he was athletic, but was he the most athletic guy? No. Was he the strongest? No. He was the guy that fucking worked, outworked every other player in the NBA. And he was self-made. He was obsessive with how hard he worked. Um, and so, like I said, if you had the same... I'm not saying I was similar in that respect, but I played hard in practice and I competed. And so he, he uh, liked, liked me, I guess, you know? And so it, uh, it was pretty special to be around somebody like that. And that, you know, obviously it's so sad what happened and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and it, was, it was a tough time. That day was, was horrific. How, how did you, so you earned his respect by by playing hard, not kissing his ass, treating him like a teammate. But how did you how did you really get to know him? Um, well, he was really good friends with Roni Turioff before, and I played with Roni in, in in college. And so when I got traded there, you know, him and Roni had a good relationship. So Roni was like, you know, look after my guy. He's not an LA type kid. You're gonna have to really you know, help him out and make him feel welcome. And, and Kobe did that from the beginning. Um, you know, and then he was a thinker. He wasn't a guy that just, he was obsessed with basketball, but he didn't want to talk hoops the whole time. Um, and I'm similar. I like politics and, and things that other people probably would find uh, weird, I guess you could say. And he had a similar type mindset. Um, so he liked films and stuff. We talk about films and, um, we, you know, we visited the White House and we talked politics and things of that nature and things that uh, we we're glad that there's no cell phone cameras around at the time. Um, <laughs> so, of course. Um, yeah, he just uh, he just was a cat that uh, liked to compete and liked to win. And um, he just wanted to kick people's ass. And so if you had that similar mindset or or goal he fucked with you you know that's the best way to put it um and you know i just was always thankful he always publicly defended me numerous times um and so he was just a good dude man he was just a cool person um he made me feel welcome when i was there his family his vanessa was always so kind to my my daughter's mom who was my girlfriend at the time mm -hmm. when my daughter was three years old down there they were always like whatever you guys need um holler at us i mean we were lucky enough to be out of some social functions with us they were so kind and made us feel welcome they could tell we were fish out of water we weren't used to la 
we didn't know where we were doing. You know, we're young kids from the Northwest, you know, people don't even know right. that state exists half the time, you know? Um, and so it just was really thankful reflecting back on my time with him to be able to, uh, say that I was with a guy that, uh, was a savant, was a genius, was a, somebody that showed you that, uh, you know, in your personal life, are you working hard enough? Are you really fucking grinding? Are you, doing whatever you're doing, whatever your passion is, are you doing it hard enough? And uh, that's the biggest thing I took away from his passing was it was a reflection of my time with him. It was a reflection on, I had to look in the mirror, you know, I think a lot of people did, even if you didn't know him on that level, it's like, Hey man, this guy transitioned from being the best athlete to being, you know, an Oscar winner, but he was fucking all into his kids, man. He was all into how can I be the best at whatever I'm doing at the time? And like I said, you don't meet people like that very often that truly, truly live by that code. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough time to, uh, you know, learn that news and, and, you know, sit back and reflect. And, and I thought the Lakers did a fantastic job on that, that ceremony, that funeral I was there. And, um, it, it, it was glum obviously, but it wasn't, completely you know just sad it was more of a celebration of him and his daughter's life and i thought the speakers were fantastic as well and it was good to see everybody but i just i felt like i walked out of there that i had you know some uh, some closure and i felt good about my time being around the lakers and how much he's affected other people's lives and i was just really thankful that i was to be a, a mini school part of that and be a part of you know, I was in his prime. I was during the time when he was winning championships. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was cool to be around that, to be honest. Maybe during sharing, the, bro. Yeah, and even during the time that we're we're going through right now, mm-hmm. I, I still find myself thinking about, as I have from the very beginning, about just just Kobe and his daughter. The fact that it was that his daughter was with him too, and 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 sometimes that doesn't, you know, it, t- it takes a while for me to just during my mm-hmm. daily thoughts to even move on from that, that, that his, yeah. that his daughter was, his daughter's with him too. It's just, it, it's remarkably tragic. Hey, I was, I was, when I learned about it, you know, I was out doing, doing normal things and, um, you know, I didn't know if it was true or not, just the way that the society and culture is with the internet. And once I found out, um, that his daughter was on there and it, it broke me down um, because, you know, I coached my daughter's sixth grade basketball team, like I said, and that, that, that and calling games helps me uh, keep my cup filled with basketball. And so mm-hmm. that hit home for me because I, you know, obviously I enjoy it, but you don't really until something tragic happens and, you know, you don't really reflect on how lucky you are to be able to go to a gym and coach 10 sixth grade girls on how to play the game and he was doing the exact same thing and so just to sit back and reflect on that and really look in the mirror and be like am i fucking doing everything i can every single day am i grinding my ass off and um it's some hard answers you got to ask for yourself but uh like i said i witnessed it i've seen how much he put into his craft into his family and so it, it it really caused me to reflect on my own life when he uh, passed. It was so sad. It was awful. Adam, you, you reference that Roni had a great relationship with him. Obviously, Robert Sacre did. You did. It's weird that all these Gonzaga connections 
have you guys had discussions about how you, how you've dealt with his his passing? Yeah, I talked. I saw Ronnie down at the deal, and and Ronnie and I have been close for years. Um, and you know, we had our moment of reflection. We were, uh, you know, watery eyed for sure. And I called him after um, it happened, and we talked for a, a moment because Ronnie was really, really close with him. And um, you know, Robert the same way. He lives in Spokane, not too far from where I live. And uh, you know, we sat back and and just reflected on on stories and what he taught you and you know they actually had robert and i talk to the gonzaga team a couple days after it happened on just his legacy and i i broke down during that speech myself um because uh cove was there for me uh, a couple times like i said he spoke publicly highly of me and defended me without you know my blessing or whatever he just did it um, because he was a good person and um, there was another time when I was out the league he uh, I was it was a year after I was out and so I wasn't playing obviously and I was career was in the in the shit and my personal life wasn't great I was really depressed and I was basically a hermit in my own house and I was didn't go out in the community at all. And then, you know, if he did, it was one of people asking you, why aren't you playing? And I was, you know, I'm 26 at the time or whatever I was, and, you know, number three pick and just really low point in my life. And I get a text from Robert Laura, the, the Lakers security, and it was Kobe's like one of his best friends. And he said, hey, what's your address? Uh, I got something in the mail for you. And Robert and I had a relationship. Um, you know, I was into rifles, and so I would call Robert. Like, what, what, do, what do you think I should get? And so we had a relationship besides just him and Kobe, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, I knew Robert on a little bit of a uh, sure, different level. Sure, And so I thought I was getting a package from Robert on, you know, something, a magazine or whatever, just something. And I get the package, and it's um, an autographed jersey from Didier Drogba, um, who is my favorite player. I'm a Chelsea fan. And, um, you know, it was from Kobe. And... Game worn jersey, you know, signed Didier Drogba to Adam Best Wishes. And I always thought Kobe, um, you know, made a phone call, which is, would be fine. It's still cool as shit. It's unbelievable. And the night he passed, I'm scrolling through, reading everything, and I'm emotional. And on Chelsea's, um, you know, Instagram page, it's him with Didier Drogba holding up a jersey and it says to Adam best wishes so he went up to my favorite player got it signed for me without me even asking and sent it to me when he knew I was was low you know it's unbelievable I still have the jersey and uh you know it's that's that's what Kobe Bryant was man he was just one of those dudes who understood his own aura and could sense when people were down and he he had i'm not the only person that had that obviously like he went to his, to his, his funeral and people were talking about just how he impacted their lives like making phone calls for him or pulling him aside knowing when they were down he was that type of person um and so yeah when he passed it was it was difficult i was i was i was fucked up for you know about a week and like i said it was a real reflection on my own life i'm like what am i doing right now and if i'm doing everything um, the way the mama mentality and that's that's that shit's real um so yeah I, I i again i'm just really thankful that i i was uh 
to be able to be a part of his greatness and be around him. Um, and that's just not bullshit. That's real. Like he had a real impact on me. Um, he helped me um, through some dark times, like I said, and he publicly defended me and, and was just always cool to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm just thankful for that. And I'm just incredibly sad that he's gone to be, to be frank. Yeah. And we're really thankful that you shared those stories with us. Cause I'd imagine yeah. that, you know, when you see that Jersey now, just so many other emotions yeah. will, will, will flood into you no matter you know how long you're looking at that Jersey. Let's, let's close with some, some quick hits on another note, but this first one is still Kobe related. What will you never forget about the white house visit? Um, so when we're standing waiting to meet the president, you know, normally you go behind and, and they do the the speech. Well, Barack came in and dapped everybody up and he knew who I was. And so that was just pretty cool. He's like, oh, what's up, Adam? And he like, you know, he gives you the handshake and like pats you on the back. And I was just like hmm. blown away. That I mean, I wasn't even fucking playing hardly on that team. And he's like, oh, hey, Adam, how you doing? He's, you know, and shook my hand and stuff. And I was just, it was just fucking unbelievable. It was Barack Obama. So, uh, you know, just being able to be in the, the White House, obviously is cool, but he just had a, a, a coolness factor about him. He really did. He was just like a dude. I don't know. I don't want to like disparage his, he's obviously the president, but if he walked into a bar and like dapped you up, you would just think he was just one of the homies. I guess is the best way to put yeah. it. And that's, how, <laughs> that's how he acted around everybody. He was just cool. Who's like, the president? You know what I mean? It was professional, but it was also like he was a fan of us, but it wasn't awkward. You know what I'm saying? There was no awkward. Yeah. He was yeah. Just like, what's up, guys? I like watching you guys play. And oh, what's up, Adam? And shook my hand. And it was like, holy fuck. Hey, you know, <laughs> That is, it was cool. It was really cool. That's incredible. So Michael Jordan was the the minority owner of the the Bobcats when uh, when they drafted you. What's your your coolest Michael Jordan moment? Um, there's a few. Um, after a game, the year I was injured, you know, I tore my ACL my second year um, in the preseason, so I was out the whole season. Um, we were it's probably like three or four games back, and Sam Vincent was the head coach that year. Mm-hmm. And we were playing the New Jersey Nets, and it was when they were about ready to break up that J-Kid, Vince, uh, Richard Jefferson team. So they were still good, but they were, you know, Canyon. those guys were not there mentally, and they were out the door. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is going to get broken up. And we were up – uh, probably 10, 12 and going into the fourth and we lose on a back pick, like lob, like just dumbass defense, bad play lose. So then we're, you know, we're trying to fight for the eighth seed. And so we had to have a win. We probably have 10, 15 games left. So I'm in the bathroom, you know, uh, using the restroom and Derek Anderson, the former Kentucky player was injured as well. And, we're sitting there taking a piss and Mike walks back. He's like, Hey, two fucker. He's like, Hey, you two fuckers get in here real quick. And so we fucking finish up and wash our hands and walk in there and everybody's sitting around, you know, like in the locker room. So I'm like limping to get to my chair. Like, fuck, this is going to be interesting. And he proceeds to fucking chew 
every motherfucker out in that room like one by one and it was one of those where if you guys seen full metal jacket where it's funny because the lines are so good when somebody's getting chewed out so you kind of have yeah where you're like laughing but you you're waiting for your your time next to get your ass fucking chewed but also like it's so pristine and so clear and so concise and there's funny lines within it too but he's pissed off so um yeah i witnessed the michael jordan chewing fucking everybody out but i'll give him credit at, at the end of it he brought everybody back you know as far as like you guys are good players and you need to learn how i play you know what i mean but it was he was pissed and yeah so i had to sit there with you know one of those where you put your hand over your mouth and protect yourself from smirking because you know you're coming next but like the shit he's saying to other people you're like holy fuck and he just he fucking shoot at i mean literally every every person in that room got their ass chewed so it was it was pretty cool and it's jordan and it's jordan exactly what what are you gonna say like yeah you you can shoot like it's michael jordan you fucking shoot you out like what are you gonna say you're gonna say shit and so and the shit he was saying to people was true but it was harsh but then also it was funny um so yeah it it had a lot of different dynamics to it um yeah i've never seen a grown man chew out other grown men and it was like a father a mother chewing out their child where you just like welled up with tears in your eyes too you know (laughs) wait did did he chew did he chew you out even though you were hurt yeah no he was like are you fucking coming in here rehabbing enough you know like he chewed everybody out (laughs) fucking in here you know and what do you, you just sit there and take it but he he literally chewed every person out in that fucking room everybody it was awesome Ugh. last one for me give me an experience i've heard you say this that you you feel so fortunate that you've had certain experiences simply because you're an nba player give us one non-basketball related that oh, sticks man. out that man i had this because i was an nba player okay um this is honest to god truth you know on my on my kids. Um, this is a true story. So when I, after my rookie season, um, buddy of mine flies to LA, we go to LA, one of my best friends and, um, Rage Against the Machines playing at Coachella. And this is, this is right when Coachella is getting popular, but it's when you could still like rent a house, you know, and be normal. So we rent a condo on one of the golf courses and it's Rage Against the Machine. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers and DJ Tiesto is the three headliners. So, um, my boy Aaron Mintz, who's now you know I think works for he works for CA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he was a runner for Priority Sports, so he was the West Coast guy, so he was my guy. And he comes along with us, and he's like, "Hey, I got a a plug. We can get artist artist passes, so we can go anywhere on the park." So fuck yeah! So we get those artist passes. And his uh, somebody related to him or somebody that he knew in his circle was Flea's assistant. Um, so she gets a text like, hey, Flea wants to meet Adam and let's go check it out. So fuck yeah, let's go. So we're <laughs> at Coachella just dicking around like at the start of the day. And so we get a go-kart or a golf cart and they take us to the to where the artists, they all have their like, you know, their trailer homes or their big buses. and we go up and uh, to Flea's deal and he's in there with his wife at the time or his girlfriend and his young daughter. And then his, I think his niece 
And so we go into his thing and he's like, Hey, nice to meet you guys. And we're just sitting at his like dinner table thing in the RV and he's having a conversation with us, but he's also playing a unplugged bass, like trying, like warming up. So he's like, do, 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 like fucking unbelievable. And just like talking to you. So you're like, Holy shit. And before we came into the park, my friend and I, I mean, it's no secret that it's legal now. We, we enjoyed marijuana and sure. we got spooked at the gate. So we just, we threw our shit out of our pocket cause they were fucking checking everybody. So we were like, well, fuck, I'm not, you know, we're not getting put in handcuffs here. So we threw it to the side. So the conversation comes up. We're like, Hey buddy, um, do you have any, um, like a joint or something we can have? And he starts laughing. He's like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Calls his chef. The chef shows up with a fanny pack, has, hands us a joint. His girlfriend and daughter and his niece, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll just go outside real quick. You guys can do your thing. So we sit in a circle, myself, my best friend, Flea, Aaron Mintz. We pass a joint around. And, <laughs> okay, this is where the story gets a little bit crazy. This is, uh, this is thousands of As questions. if that wasn't enough. I'm, As if that's I'm not, not enough. I, I'm not embellishing it. So we're smoking a joint with Flea and trying not to freak out. He's like, hey, do you guys want to go watch a show? And fuck yeah, we're high as a kite right now. As I walk out of the trailer, and this is fucking true, Joaquin Phoenix is sitting with his with his girlfriend at the picnic table right outside. And this is right after um, Gladiator came out. So this is the fucking emperor in my mind, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> He looks over at me and he goes, holy shit, you're fucking stoned, man. Swear to God. And I'm thinking he's going to do the thumb thing, you know, because I'm fucking hot. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm just like, yeah, man. And, you know, he's like laughing and then he starts talking to Flea and stuff. He was cool. And so we're sitting there, just me and my uh, buddy and Aaron were just sitting there waiting. He's like, all right, let's go. Flea's like, all right, let's go. And he takes us with his wife and his daughter and she's got the headphones on and we go side stage high as a kite and watch Ghostface Killer at Coachella with the sun going down. Um huh. but yeah, that was all oh. the oh, God. Yeah, that'll uh <laughs> yeah, that'll work. That'll and, work. Uh, he was such a cool dude. He was so laid back and he was you know, he knew I was a fish out of water, so he was just cool as shit. This is before I was a Laker. This is when I was on Charlotte. He's like, Oh, mm-hmm. welcome to the NBA and just I wanted to meet you. I really liked you. Blah, blah, blah. Just cool as fuck. Amazing. And so, um, and then, you know, I, I built a relationship with Tom Murillo of Raging Against the Machine. I used to get him tickets to Lakers games. So I was fortunate enough to meet him, um, at LA Rising. Um, obviously I went to their show at Coachella, but I got to meet him and Zach De La Roca at LA Rising afterwards. Um, cause after I, I used to get him Lakers tickets, like in the playoffs and be like, he would always be like rage tickets for life. I'm like, all right, I'm going to fucking call you on, you know, I'm so, <laughs> yeah, um, they're unbelievable live too. If you ever get a chance, I know their tours got canceled just like everything else. But if you, I've seen them twice, if you guys ever, even if you're not a rage fan per se, they're unbelievable live. You need to check them out. Um, oh, that'd be, dude. that'd be incredible. It's, I just yeah. have, I now have a funny thought of like someone calling you up asking if, if you can get them tickets to to your game, and you're like, "Sorry, gave them to Tom Morello. Sorry, it's not going to happen yeah. tonight. Yeah. Gave them away." No, it, yeah, exactly. Like uh, I made sure I I set those aside for because um, I knew he emailed me. I had a 
uh, of deal in Sports Illustrated when I was a freshman. I had an article, and he emailed me out of the blue. He's a huge sports fan. And so I had a relationship just via, like, email. Then I get traded to L.A., and he's like, hey, if you, you know, whatever, want to hang out and blah, blah, blah. So we always texted each other, and then I knew he was a huge sports fan, so I just be like, hey, man, if you ever want tickets, just hit me up, like, no shame or whatever. And it wasn't an angle. It was just, like, somebody that was my idol. I really was a huge fan of of Rage Against the Machine, so I was just happy. I wasn't expecting anything in return, but he was always like, yeah, you can uh, hit me on the backside for Rage tickets. So it's, uh, it's definitely worked out. All because of a smooth jumper, guys. There you, know? you go. There you go. Yeah, to say to say the least. Um, uh, so, last one for us, Adam. This is the uh, Rejecting the Screen podcast, obviously. So, we always ask the guests who's the one guy they would choose. Game seven, life on the line. Who would you go to to reject the screen and go ISO? We usually say no MJ. For you, a teammate or someone you played against in your life, in your career, whoever it is, but you also can't say Kobe, who's the one guy you're going to to reject the screen and, and go ISO? That's a good question. I think the uh, I played against LeBron during his Cleveland-Miami year, so I'd have to go LeBron, and I know that's so cliche, um, but I have a lot of respect for him as a player. So I'm going to go cliche. I'm going to go easy route. I'm going to go LeBron, um, and hopefully they figure out this NBA season because I, I, I think that – you know, an, an L.A. Clippers and Lakers matchup is something that needs to happen and, and putting this year on the shelf. And I understand the health ramifications with having fans. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think, like, for his legacy, that they have to complete this year because he's had such a fantastic – is he leading the league in assists or something like that? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. 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 yeah, he's I mean, over 10 assists two, a game. Right, it's a yeah. two-man MVP race. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. – It'd be LeBron. That's who I'm going to go with. Easy. And this was outstanding. More time than I know we asked for, and we we really do appreciate it. Best of health and safety to you and your family. Yeah, you too. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. And uh, uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me soapbox a little bit. It's uh, it's been nice to uh, share some stories. And, you know, with this mundane routine we got going now. So, again, thank you for having me on. All right, no, well, hold thank on. You. So, so wait. So, since we've got this mundane routine, so next week we'll do we'll do two hours. You good? You got yeah, two yeah. hours in you. I got I got plenty of stories. I just have to make sure I filter some of them. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, you know how it goes. So, hey, I, listen. I when it when it comes time, Adam, when it comes time to write the book, I will I will gladly gladly help you out. I, I the, there are um, incredible stories, man. Yeah, the title is huh. going to be my funnest year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my. Exactly. <laughs> oh, again, guys, I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Uh, yeah, all right, man. You. Have a great one. Yep. That was incredible. It was great, man. It was great. It was great. So many stories on so many different levels. And I never felt once that we were trying to pull anything out of them. I mean, asking asking the right questions and following up appropriately, yes, but he was so forthcoming with entertaining stories to take us behind the curtain. That's exactly, exactly as, as a listener and as a host, that's, that's exactly what I want. That's all you can ask for. And what a good it's weird. I, I, I've gotten to know, he's a great guy. I, I've gotten to know him the last couple of years. He was, he was interested in broadcasting. We got, we got connected that way. He was doing his stuff and he, 
he reached out was like hey you know can can you listen to some of my stuff he sent me some of his clips and i was blown away he's a great color guy he's got a really bright future in that if that's where he decides to go he's obviously a really strong storyteller um and it his insight into the game now that he's he's got reignited that passion for it as he talked about he went through some periods where you know it was dark for him but he's he is a gem and whatever he decides whether it's continue to coaching his daughter or whether it's you know take taking that broadcasting which he already does for Learfield and, and for Gonzaga right now but if he if he wants to take that on a national stage future is so bright for whatever he does but I just as a person like I just love talking to him I, I love all the things that he has to say I love just the way he views the world and uh yeah I mean I think people know about Adam Morrison they think about JJ Redick they think about 2006 they might think about him with the Lakers some but there's so much more to that man and I'm so glad that he uh shared all that stuff with us we were, we were lucky <laughs> yeah. to hear it. yeah you do and uh, when I brought up 06 I, I was simply the, the UCLA game I was, I was simply asking if he had watched the game, I wasn't. And then I was actually pretty interested about like, if he had ever, and I, right. thought, I thought that, I thought that story was pretty good. The, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't asking him to go into any detail about the game and then he did it. And it is so wild to look back on that. And the, the heat that he took for crying. And now oh. when someone cries, it's, Oh, look at the passion Look how much he yeah. cares, right? It, yeah. it is, it's, it's so, it was so silly at the time. And now looking back at it, it's, it's now it's gotten to the point where it's absurd to even think that that was a, any sort of weakness. And, and you know, what sucks the most is that the fact is that like this great moment, this culmination of his career, I mean, he talked about, you know, he mentioned that, that tournament, and playing the the Xavier game, right? So he plays the Xavier team in the first round. I think he has 34 points in that game, which yeah, and again, getting getting called and getting called a bitch the entire time, including yeah. including in the handshake line by an assistant coach. Assistant coach. Meanwhile, he had 35. He had 35 that night. And he's just torching. He's torching Xavier, a really d- ridiculous defensive team. He's torching them and he's and he's getting called a bitch. But the the wild part to me is that it's even such that he has this incredible college career, dealt with all this adversity, not just with diabetes, but also, as he talked about, being basically a, a college-level beetle. I mean, he couldn't go anywhere, do anything, right? All that stuff that he was overcoming and dealing with. And then it's like people want to bring up the UCLA game, this one of these great games in college basketball lore, and it's like he feels this need to like almost – mention the crying or explain the it's like that is so ridiculous every college player when their career ends feels that way and you know what they better feel that way they better or else what's the point right so well as he said he's got the time so let's call him up next week and do uh do 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 two hours wow all right, so you can follow Adam on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. It's Rejecting the Screen, the Going ISO edition. And if you go into the feed, Rejecting the Screen, you'll see all of the long-form interviews because they're just Going ISO and then the name. So Going ISO, Sam Mitchell, Ryan Russillo, Peter Vesey, Kevin Willis, Sean Marion, Eddie Johnson. Kenny Anderson. Kenny Anderson and so many more. So you can just go in and listen to all of those. And as you're listening, you won't even know 
what year, day, era that we're even in right now. It's called Evergreen Content. So enjoy it for as long as you can. And check out everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On NBA, Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. Yep, still going on. And your team every day or most days on the Locked On Podcast Network, plus Hollinger and Duncan and the new show, The Big Board with Chad Ford. Chad Ford's back, the longtime NBA draft analyst. He's back. The Big Board is the new podcast here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You and Adam Morrison, the best.